I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. This is episode 31. Christopher West talks about popular culture and the new evangelization. Christopher West, it's great to have you here today. Thank Hello. you, David. Great to be with you and your audience. Yes. So, uh, you, of course, are the, the great spokesman of the theology of the body and the writings of John Paul II. Uh, but we're not going to talk about that today, although I have a feeling it's going to work its way in. I'm sure it will come up. <laughs> um, what I want to focus on is popular culture. And uh, because I know that's, ha- that's played a part in you coming to the faith, I'm just going to ask you to describe that in, in a minute. Uh, but really, we're going to ask the question, uh, does popular culture have a place in Christian culture? Um, is it all low culture and bad culture, or should Christian culture just be high, refined culture? Uh, where can it sit? And if there is a place, what can Christians do about it? I, I just have this memory of awful Christian rock and they're just being turned off by it. And so, yes. uh, you and me both. <laughs> Christians have tried. And so, uh, we're going to explore the, the principles and the ideas. So first of all, Christopher, uh, when we, we talked before, I asked you just to give, give us your story of how you came to be so passionate about what you do. So if you could just give us that, that story in faith, if you like, that journey in faith. Sure. Yeah. I, I can give you the short version. The, the, the extended version would take several broadcasts. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, you know, I look back at the role of, of popular culture, especially music and movies in my life, and it's only been in retrospect that I have seen the role that they have played in my interior life. And I often tell my audiences the story of when I was eight years old and I was lying in bed and Bruce Springsteen comes on the radio singing his 70s anthem. This was the 70s. His song was Born to Run. Right. And, and he's looking for this place. He, he's he's trying to get somewhere. He has this desire to find something that's going to fulfill him and he's running to find it. And he's running to find it with a girl named Wendy. Uh, little did I know at the time that 17 or 18 years later, I would marry a girl named Wendy. <laughs> so it's, it's like this song was kind of a prophecy of my life. And at the end of this song, he says to Wendy, he says, someday girl, I don't know when, we're going to get to that place where we really want to go and we'll walk in the sun. But till then, tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. And then he just cracks open his rib cage here and he lets this, this cosmic cry come out of his heart. And I'll spare you my, my attempt to sing it, but it, it, it spoke to me. Something rumbled through my soul. It's like the ceiling in my bedroom cracked open and I was staring into the depths of the universe and I had no idea what it was, but I knew it was big. I knew I was part of something big, but sadly in my Catholic upbringing, Catholic schools in the seventies and eighties, nobody connected the dots for me between that, that ache. That's what I call it. This Mm -hmm. ache I felt for something literally out of this world. Nobody connected the dots between that ache I felt when I heard that Springsteen song or the ache I felt when finally in third grade after waiting since kindergarten 
Stacy Reed finally sat next to me. The, the nuns arranged the classroom in such a way that Stacy Reed was finally sitting next to me. And the, the, the heart palpitations I was having <laughs> because Stacy Reed was finally sitting next to me. Nobody connected the dots between my passions and longings and desires and this thing I was learning in religion class called God. Uh, in fact, religion class, I can summarize with, with one short word, boring. Mm. There was no connection between the doctrine I was learning and my day-to-day -day experiences as, as a young person. It wasn't until many years later I discovered John Paul II's teaching that those dots started to get connected. But here's how I look back on it. I, I was raised on what I call the starvation diet gospel. And, and the basic message in the air was your desires are bad. You need to repress all that, but follow all these rules and you'll be a good upstanding Christian citizen. Well, I wanted to be a good upstanding citizen and in many regards. I had an older brother who got in trouble with drugs and in trouble with the law and I didn't want to go down that path and I tried to be a good kid. And then, uh, then the desires really hit hyperdrive when, when I was a teenager and the fast food started to look more and more attractive. You know, you can only hold your breath so long until you got to take in some air and you don't care. If you've been told the air is polluted, you have to breathe. I was so hungry for some kind of satisfaction, for some kind of fulfillment, that I didn't care if I was told that the food I was gonna to go to was, was not good for me. It was better than starving to death. And to go along with that analogy, you know, if fast food becomes your steady diet, the grease and the sodium is gonna catch up with you. And indeed, it did catch up with me in my college years. And I remember getting on my knees, this is now 1988, uh, I fell on my knees in a college dorm and I said, God in heaven, if you exist, you better show me why you gave me all these desires because they're getting me and everybody I know into a hell of a lot of trouble. What is your plan? Do you have a plan? It was a very ragged prayer, but it was also very honest. And something did shift. At this stage in my life, you know, I was waking up every day not wanting to be alive. Uh, I would wake up and I would just, you know, let out a few expletives and say, ah, oh, blankety blank, I'm alive. I got to deal with life. But the day after I had let out that pretty ragged but honest prayer, I got up, went off to class, and it wasn't until about lunchtime that I realized, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to hate life. And it was just a recognition, wait, 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 wait a minute. Is there somebody out there who heard my prayer? And it started me seeking. It started me asking bigger questions. And I'll, I'll make a very long story short, but that search led me to St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body a few years later. And I remember reading it for the first time, and I, I had to have a a theological dictionary in one hand and a philosophical dictionary in the other just to make sense out of it. I was 23, 24 years old when I found it. And, uh, but nonetheless, I, I, I understood enough to realize this Polish guy was talking right to my heart. And he was telling me that that ache I felt ever since I was a little kid, that ache I felt when I heard Springsteen on the radio, it had a name. 
He called it Eros. Now, in my mind, David, at the time, you know, Eros, to me, all I know is the English equivalent, erotic. And, and to me, anything erotic was just pornographic and, and distorted. But he was saying, no, 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 we must never confuse Eros with another Greek word, porneia. And he told me, Eros is a desire for everything that is true, good, and beautiful. And ultimately, Eros is a yearning for God. But because tragically, with original sin, our desires became disoriented, uh, we, we need to go through an inner transformation to get our desires reoriented towards the divine, towards the infinite. The analogy I use is that God gave us Eros to be like the fuel of a rocket that has the power to launch us to the stars. But with the original sin, our rocket engines became inverted. And, and that's why we go out into the world seeking love, seeking joy, seeking happiness, but so often it backfires on us. Mm -hmm. This was my experience. The fast food looked good. It even tasted good going down, but it led to more misery. And I learned the hard way that you can die from starvation on the one hand, but you can also die from food poisoning on the other. And, and John Paul II was basically speaking right to me saying, Christ came into the world not to condemn those with inverted rocket engines. He came into the world to redirect our rocket engines to the stars. And I discovered Christianity is not a starvation diet. It's an invitation to a banquet. And I really, I really believed I was holding in my hands the answer to the crisis of our times. This was the real sexual revolution, Will. And I, I, I felt like I had discovered something as big as the cure for cancer. That's really, that's really how I received it. And I, I knew then, you know, if you discover something that big, you can't sit on it. You have to tell people about it. So I knew then I would spend the rest of my life studying this teaching and sharing it with the world. And I, I had a, a pretty dramatic shift in my career path at that point. I, I was, at the time, I was a singer and a songwriter. I was playing music in a lot of different bands, and I had come out with an album, in fact, and I was shopping my album to, around to some record labels. And I, I traded in my guitar and my drumsticks for... Uh, for a career in theology. Uh, li little did I ever think I would be doing this with my life, but the last 25 or whatever years it's been, uh, I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else with my life. I have the greatest job in the world. I just get to invite hungry people to this banquet. Well, that's, that's tremendous. I'm glad you uh, decided not to be a Christian rock singer. <laughs> um, and you did what you did, and you've been a great service. I'm just going to tell you my story. I, I was interested in your phrase of connecting the dots. That you, if I'm just trying to sort of summarise what you said, you felt that Springsteen is not a Christian, as far as I know, and it wasn't a Christian. Was, this is interesting. He was raised a Catholic, and he, ah. I, I devoured his autobiography a couple years ago. In fact, I read it twice, <clears throat> and I find this guy absolutely fascinating he he credits his catholic upbringing with with his imagination you know he's i wouldn't call him like a believing practicing catholic mm -hmm. but he says hey you know once a catholic always a catholic it's in my blood and he says it gave me the 
it gave me the imagination to understand there really is a battle between good and evil, and there really is a promised land, and there really is this yearning for redemption, and there is really this place we're running to that we want to get to. So while he may not be a, a practicing Catholic per se, it, the, the Catholic uh, background of his, of his childhood really has shaped and formed him. Yes. Now, my um, experience is, uh, it was at the same sort of period. It was in the 70s. I'm 10 years older than you, I think, or a little bit older. So I was, at, uh, I was about 16 or 17, and I heard the, the music of Genesis. And this was in the days when Peter Gabriel was with Yes. Me. This is sort of British prog rock, reflective, slow-moving, uh, it's sort of progressing in, in melody and theme, very thoughtful, uh, as it struck me. Now, up to that point, I just assumed I wasn't interested in music. I hadn't heard anything that I liked. And this was, this was an experience where I, I felt the hairs on the back of my neck wow. uh, stand on end, kind of felt exposed, as though I was embarrassed somehow. I just thought, is anybody else feeling this? And um, Now, I heard sometime later, that the, the thing that characterized Genesis, because then what's happened is I started to devour all of this rock music and grew my hair and, you know, had flared jeans and all the rest of it. And embroidered awesome. Them. <laughs> uh, I, I'd love to see pictures. Oh, I hope they'd be destroyed. I, <laughs> I took some ones. Um, and uh, so I, I was devoted to, I mean, this was a, a religion. I talk about this in my latest book, actually. I, I mean, I wouldn't have said I was worshiping them, but, yeah, we, we used to sing songs at morning prayer at school and say, God bless Peter Gabriel and Robert Plant. And so we, we understood there was something like that happening. This is teenagers messing around. Um, but what happened, what I've discovered was that the form of Genesis, so it wasn't the words that interested me particularly. I didn't know what uh -huh. they were singing about. It was the, the, the structure of the music. And I discovered later that they'd rejected the standard blues format and they'd used sort of uh, conventional scales and this sort of thing. I'm not a musical expert. Um, and that what I was searching for, eventually, I had that, that experience with a number of things. So something like six or seven years later, it was Schubert, piano music. I was listening to it and I just remember just stopping. Um, and that culminated for me in Palestrina in the Mass at the Brompton Oratory. And when, I, when I heard that, it, and then of course, that opened, it wasn't just what I was hearing, it was everything that was going on. The arts in the, in the place, uh, the smell, the incense, the shafts of light coming in, and I could see the smoke. And I just thought this, in, in the same way, I, I thought back to what I'd been sort of, what, what I'd been responding to when I heard Genesis and thought, this, this is what beauty does. And also that sense that you had of being, it, Genesis reached me where I was at that point. Yes. I wouldn't have responded to Palestrina. I don't yes. think. I've seen you reach for a book there, so go on. Yes, I, I reach for a book because <laughs> I, I want to quote, quote Springsteen himself here. <laughs> he, th this is 30 years after I had that original experience, very similar to what you're describing with Genesis I had with Springsteen, something got awakened. 30 years later, I'm watching Bruce Springsteen induct my other favorite band, U2, okay. into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is 2005. And, and I, was, I was thrilled to see Springsteen inducting U2 
into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is what Springsteen said. Springsteen here describes to me 30 years later the experience I had listening to his song in the 70s. Listen to this. He says, a great rock band, and I think that's an important qualifier because we know there's plenty of trash out there that yeah. falls under the banner of rock music. Yeah. Not only trash, but evil. I mean, that's... That, sure. Let's be certain. Yes, yes. The, yeah. the enemy yeah. has uses... Absolutely. It yeah. has, the enemy has used this music to bring great evil. I, I don't yeah. deny that at all. Yeah. But, but again, here I, I want to say this. This is so important. If we get this wrong, we get the whole universe wrong. Yes. The devil does not have his own clay. <laughs> All he can do is take God's clay and twist it up, right? God looked at what he made. All the clay is his. And he says, behold, it's very good. The enemy gets a hold of God's very good clay and twists it up. So even what, what is twisted up in, in some of this music, even a lot of this music, something good has gotten twisted up. I agree. Yes. If we give, if we give the devil his own clay, we become, we become her heretical in our thinking of the universe. Yes. We end up ascribing uh, evil. We we end up attributing to evil substance, when evil doesn't have substance. Evil is the distortion or the lack of a good. It is so important that we keep this in mind, which means. Everything can be redeemed. Everything can be redeemed. If you, even if you were attracted to some kind of really distorted rock music as a teenager or whatever, there's some good in there that got twisted up. And we need to learn how to untwist what sin has twisted. Even Barrett Manilow. Even all of it. All <laughs> of it has. Actually, I don't think he's that bad. I'm just joking. Yeah. All of it gets un <laughs> can, can and should be untwisted. And I would love to unfold this more because I have some theories about rock music and the sexual revolution. And but we'll get to that later. We'll come back to that because I have some theories too, and that, that's precisely what I want to get into. Good, good. So let me let me quote from Springsteen yeah. here. And again, here he's explaining to me, 30 years after what happened to me, what happened to me. Okay. He says, a great rock band searches for the same kind of combustible force that fueled the expansion of the universe after the Big Bang. They want the earth to shake and spit fire. They want the sky to split apart and for God to pour out. Then he paused and he said a bit sheepishly, it's embarrassing to want so much and expect so much from music, except sometimes it happens. Mm. There it is. That's, that's what happened to me. The sky split open and God fell out. I mean, that, that, that's a yearning for the incarnation. That's a yearning for heaven to open and God to come down to meet us. That, whether Springsteen can connect those dots or not, he was, it, what is he running for? Someday, girl, I don't know when we're going to get to that place where we really want to go. Where's the place we really want to go? He may not have words for it, but he's honest enough to look inside at his heart and say, there's something in there I'm longing for. And he stumbled in his own way on what Augustine stumbled on nearly 2,000 years ago or 1,800 years ago, that 
you've made us for yourself, O God, and our heart is restless. We're going to be restless. We're going to be running. We're going to be searching. We're going to be looking for something, and that something we're looking for is God. That something we're looking for has been looking for us. The sky did split open. God did come out. It's called the incarnation. We're all looking for God, whether we know it or not. Right. So let's let's think about more th these general principles and dig a little bit more deeply. Yeah. That. Um, so we have to hit the two instances where people were somehow evoking Christian things in some way. They weren't, as far as we know, thinking that this was what they were doing. Yes, uh, yes. Of them, um, and yet somehow it grabbed us and then sent us in the right direction. Yes. Now, on its own, I don't think either of these things could have done it. Um, but it needed more work from us. We needed these, as you, the phrase you use, somebody to, or something. Connect the dots. To join the dots. Yes. I tend to think of concentric uh, spheres of like the onion rings that sure. yeah, this was the outside and they pushed me to the next level but then I whatever's there needs to do the same and, and yes same. yes I like that and at the heart therefore clearly is God and I would say culturally at the heart are those forms connected to the worship of God which is our most profound encounter with God, of course, the mass and the lit liturgy of the hours. And so this is why Benedict the 16th says that the contemporary culture, he calls this in the spirit of the liturgy, it was a problem when it became separated from the culture of faith. Yes. We, we, it ought to be a seamless transition. And popular culture, without being sort of snappy, poppy hymns or something, yes. it could be as secular in that or profane in the sense of outside the temple yes as springsteen or genesis but christians should be able to uh, move backwards and forwards and and especially especially people will have gifts of creativity at all those levels and we need not only creativity in the list we need that as well i mean we, we virtually have nothing going on at the moment that, that's uh, a little bit in art, a little bit in music, but we also need people who can uh, create those outer rings because that's what connects with people who are not Christian. Yes. Most, most people who are not Christian are not going to want, they'll run a mile from anything that's, that has the words of the gospel. I know that because that's what I was like. I was an atheist at that point. Yes. I, I wasn't even nominally uh, Catholic. Um, so I, this this is really what I've devoted my life to as a result of that experience eventually coming into the church is trying to work out how to evangelize the culture to do that. Um, now, how do you, how would you articulate the, the, you know, the principles that I, I'm trying to uh, describe here in terms of what you're what what you're doing and how that connects to popular culture? How would you respond to that? Do you think? Yeah, I. Here's what I, th I think has happened. Um, because of a, a dearth within the church, you know, the church used to be the patron of the arts. Yes. Because of a dearth uh, within the church, 
some of the most talented artists are now totally devoted to the secular agenda. That does not mean that their art does not have value. Uh, we need to be discerning about secular art, but I think it a very uh, a distinctly un-Catholic approach to draw an overly strict line. There, there is a, a proper distinction between the sacred and the secular. Yes. There is a distinction. The distinction needs to be made, but distinction does not mean division. It, there should be a bridge here between the sacred and the secular. And I'm fascinated in the bridge in both directions. I'm fascinated, I, I mean, Springsteen for me was a bridge from a secular mind that took me, as you said, in these concentric circles into the sacred. I really like those, the, the idea of the concentric, concentric circles. So I experienced the bridge coming in. And because I experienced that, I have been intent now from within to want to build a bridge going out towards the secular to try to, to help people cross that bridge coming back in. So this bridge building between the sacred and the secular, I think is, is essential to the new evangelization. If we cannot build that bridge, evangelization does not happen. I, I couldn't agree more. There's this great um, image that I always have in trying to describe this of the icon, the traditional icon of the transfiguration. And typically you'll have Christ, the transfigured Christ, and the three apostles there knocked off their feet because they, they see this. Um, and then you have what's called a, a mandorla. Uh, a yeah, I know, yes, I know the mandorla, that, yes. That, that shape, that yes. sort of envelope shape. Now typically, it, first of all, you have these concentric bands of light. And paradoxically, I would say, they don't get lighter as they go in. They get darker. And the reason for that, what it's, what it's telling us in a, a visual language, is that God is a mystery. We cannot understand it until he reveals himself, as he did in that moment. However, we can see, if you like, the reflected light or the light of Christ permeating through and shining from, in some way, through a glass darkly, you might say, yes. in the cosmos, and then in a culture, in a Christian culture that is inspired by Christ, it should in the same way reflect that light of Christ, but in a way that those who are not baptized, those who are not Christian, um, non-believers can still see, and fallen people, and, you know, this, none of us are perfectly pure and can see, yes. you can't see Christ face to face yet, but the sacramental life does in some way open up our eyes supernaturally and we are transformed we become personally a pixel of light in that transfigured christ and we travel out and in go in peace to love and so that, that yes. dismissal is telling us to do exactly what you described go to one of those outer rings where your calling is shine with light add to it and then draw people in. Beautiful, David. You're articulating something that is a deep felt conviction of my own heart and my own mission and work. Uh, and I, I run into people, and I imagine you do as well, who, who, 
who basically dig their heels in from within the temple and say, yes. I'm not going out there. If, if they want yes. the gospel, they can come in here. Yes. And, and this is, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, actu I'm actually uh, baffled that there are people within the church who, who live this way and think this way because it, it, to me, it negates the entire apostolic mission, go and make disciples, go and make disciples. And if we, have, if we really believe that, I, that I'm partaking of the divine nature, um, in some regard, but incrementally, shall we say, in my own way, um, but because I'm baptized, I'm confirmed, I, I go, to, to go to the mass, I go to the divine liturgy. So therefore, um, either it's true or it, or it isn't. It, we yes. have something that is stronger and better. We yes. shouldn't be afraid. Now, we do need to try and understand. We need to work out what's going on. It's, we don't just go out um, foolishly, shall we say. Yes. A lot of careful thought, and I know you think about it, and I've tried to give this thought but certainly not fleeing from the secular society. Maybe we want to protect our children, for example. That, that's yes. a different matter. But you and me, um, we don't, you and I don't need to be worried about, about this. We have something that they want. And as you say, the, the, everybody else who listens to Springsteen, who listens to Genesis, at some level, and even Barry Manilow, <laughs> at some <laughs> level, they are responding to that yes. exact, exact same thing. And our job is to show them what it is. Now, yes. one is to, is to engage with them, explain. But the other thing is to have um, those cultural forms which harness that and then take them in. And now, it, that, I mean, that, 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 we need creators. Now, the only answer, I'll let you go. The only answer to that, or also the main answer to that, is we need creators who are formed in Christ. It, it begins with the yes. prayer, and it's, myst it's a mystical yes. uh, search. We, we, we need to be mystics. Now, this is not the bohemian image of the art. This is thoroughly grounded, feet on the ground, thinking, using reason, using all our faculties. But we need everything that God gives us in order to do this. David, I am so excited by what you're saying. And yes, I'm grabbing another book because I want to look up a, a important quote from the Pontifical Council for Culture that speaks directly to this. But uh, I, I want to say that the, the, one of the greatest biblical examples of what you and I are talking about here is Paul going into Athens. And what does he do before he goes into Athens? He studied their idols. He okay. studied their idols. That's what it says right in the Acts of the Apostles. In fact, it says he studied them very carefully. This is so important because uh, all you need to know about a culture to, to begin the journey of evangelizing a culture, you need to ask the question, what does this culture worship? We all worship something. And I would put it this way. We worship Whatever we think is going to satisfy the deepest cry of the heart, the deepest hunger, that's what we worship. Mm. And, and if the historians are correct, what the people of Athens were worshiping is not much different than what we're worshiping today. They didn't have pornography in the sense of photography and, and motion picture like we have today, but they did have statues. 
And, and apparently, this, if the historians are correct, what Paul was seeing was this, this pornographic art in the, in the form of statues. It says right in the Acts of the Apostles, he was deeply troubled. But he goes into Athens, and instead of just wagging fingers, instead of just scolding and shaming people for their depraved art, he uses it as an olive branch. And he says, it's, some, it's just remarkable when you think about it, he says, I see you are a very religious people. In other words, I've discovered what you worship, but now let me show you the God you're really worshiping. Let me show you what you're really looking for. Let me meet you where you are in your desire to worship. I'm going to point out to you that you're worshiping a false God here, but I'm going to lead you to the God you're really worshiping. It's a liturgical catechesis because it's, it's, a, it's a journey from the visible to the invisible. This is what the catechism says about uh, a mystagogical liturgical catechesis. It leads us from the sign, from the, the, the visible reality, to the signified, to the invisible reality. And we always fall into idolatry when we mistake the sign of the, of the God we're looking for, for the God we're looking for. And when we do that, we turn icons into idols. The goal of the new evangelization, in my mind, or at least one way to look at it, is to understand what is the main idol of the culture you want to evangelize, and then help the world to recognize that that idol is, in fact, an icon, to open the window of the icon to heaven, and that's the mandorla, right? The mandorla shape in sacred art is the opening of the window to heaven. This is the goal, is to is to transform idols back into icons and not to fall for, we have idolatry on the one hand, but we also have iconoclasm on the other. Hmm. And we will inevitably, left to our own resources, we're going to waffle one direction or the other. We're going to lean towards idol idolatry of the physical world or we'll as a knee-jerk reaction against that idolatry, we're going to flip over into iconoclasm where we think the visible world and, and all of its icons and images are themselves evil. Thank God for the church that intervenes in, in Nicaea and says we do not worship the icon, nor do we destroy the icon. We venerate the icon in this image of the mandorla, to enter the window through that it opens into the divine mystery. That's liturgy. Liturgy is the gathering up of the iconography of the world, opening it up and entering into the mystery. And the critical thing, as you said, is that we're asked to believe in something invisible. Yes. The, the, the whole nature of art in, in the broader sense is as it sets up relationship it's between an image and a prototype it immediately directs our imagination to something which isn't there it sets up a relationship in the imagination but regardless of what it is that's what art does and so we we can't most of us are unable to make that connection without some sort of some something we can perceive that directs us to something we can't. 
So, so you, 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 you did warn that the theology of the body would probably come up. So here's where it comes up. <laughs> okay, great. And here's where theology of the body and the renewal of art go hand in hand. Here's the thesis statement of John Paul II, the thesis of his theology of the body. He says, the body and only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. He goes on to say, the body was created by God to transfer into the visible reality of the world the invisible mystery hidden in God for time and, from time immemorial and thus to be a sign of it. So the body, he's saying, is the fundamental icon of the divine. In the modern world, we look at the body, but we do not see it, right? And these are words right out of Christ's mouth. They look but do not see. We mistake the window for the view. Correct, correct. That's idolatry. Yes. When we stop at the window and fail to enter through, the icon becomes an idol. Yes. But then the other mistake, as I was saying, Christians, kind of a, a hyper-spiritual response to that, idolatry, is to go to the other extreme and say, well, people are idolizing the body, and then they blame the body and say the body's evil. And then we're guilty of iconoclasm. Hmm. And Cardinal Ratzinger said iconoclasm is the summation of all heresies. It's the summation of wow. all heresies because it denies the very principle of incarnation. Yes, I, I, had, I didn't know he'd said that, but I can believe it because my, I, just from my background, I'm interested in art and beauty, all of this that I described, that's where it took me into uh, painting and an interest in that. Um, and I, I'm convinced that even within the Catholic Church today, I'm talking about people who are serious about their faith. I, 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 the, the liberals who don't care, I, I'm, not, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about those. But even there, there's a, there's, there's a tendency to be over-cerebral, to, to pray. It's all an internal process. This, um, and the, to the detriment, there's nothing wrong with that in itself, but to the detriment of this engagement with icons and all of us need that help of the image to the prototype so that we can go from the human person to the to the, the, the to christ as, as human person and from him is the invisible image of the invisible god it's all about interconnecting relationships we cannot manage and the the neglect of visual imagery particularly um is hugely important in this and it's not i believe it's not just that we don't have good or beautiful art in our churches it's that even in the way in which we worship if you compare it to an eastern church for example, yes the way in which we do this there there is so little understanding of how to engage in the context of the worship i i, I even devotions are yes. great but if it stops there it's again, it becomes an, an idol in the sense that you describe the good is the enemy of the best. And we need this utter sort of integration of all this with, with Christ at the, at the center. He's the node through which all of this passes. David, you're, you're singing my song. You are singing my song. You, you and I have been on 
you know, it's fascinating to me how your journey and my journey are, are coming to very, very similar conclusions, if not the very same conclusions about what is needed. Uh, I, I think so often of, um, well, I'll just hold it up here. I have. Yes, Guadalupe. This is the only icon we have, to my knowledge, that comes from heaven. The, the, in the east, in their east, they, they have um, re, icons not made by human hand. It's the only one I know of in the Western tradition. Uh, okay, so in the, in the West, we have Our Lady of Guadalupe. What do they have in the east? Well, they have things like um, the uh, Mandilion, which is the, the, the eastern equivalent of the Veronica cloth. So Yes, yes, uh, yes, uh, I have uh, seen so that. Yes. They're sort of just very similar stories, things just appearing, miraculous appearance of icons. But it's the, it's, it's the only one I know uh, that's in that style. And incidentally, that's consistent with an iconographic prototype. It's, it has a very Western style, but I, an icon painter could have painted it, actually. You're speaking of Guadalupe yeah, here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, what, the point I want to make here, I mean, so much could be said about the importance of this image, but what I wanna, the point I want to make is this is the gospel enculturated for the Aztecs. The imagery, right. the symbols of this, places the mystery of the gospel in the very language of the Aztecs so that they can have a bridge, right, to enter into the mystery. And just a few things I'll point out. I, I'm not an expert here, but I have studied up on it, and I find this, this fascinating. So the Aztecs, I'll draw it up to the camera yeah, here. Can see that. that works, yes. The Aztecs, uh, a, vir a virgin in Aztec culture parted her hair like this. Wow. So when the Aztecs look at this, they see a virgin. The Aztecs, a pregnant Aztec woman, would also have a ribbon over her womb right here. So they look at this and they see virgin pregnant. Now I'll see if I can get up close enough. Under the ribbon is a four-petaled flower. And that is the symbol of the divinity in the Aztec culture. So when the Aztecs look at this, they see virgin pregnant with God. They also see here, this is the color of the heavens, and the, the interior color is the color of earth. And there are all kinds of flowers here that have all kinds of meaning for the Aztec. This one flower is kind of branching off from heaven into earth, and this is a symbol of a flourishing civilization. So they looked at this, and what they saw was a, a kind of symbol of a divine obviously virginal, but a divine impregnation that when we open to it, when we open to divine life within us, just as she's the virgin pregnant with God, it creates a civilization of life and love. This image, because it spoke the language of the Aztecs, brought millions of people into the Catholic Church 500 years ago. Mm. And it becomes kind of a... a a symbol for us or, or an emblem for us of how we are to evangelize. We have to understand the people we're trying to reach and we have to learn to speak their language, to build yes. that bridge. Uh, I wanted to talk, just explore that a, a little bit more in a particular way because something that I always, always struck me, just again, as a result of my interest in art. So um, it's, we need to think about the content. So, you responded to Springsteen's words as much as the music, but it's the words you heard. 
It, it actually, it was, it was the, it was the sentiment. I didn't understand the words till okay. much later, but it was, okay. it was the feeling of the music. It was this cry of his heart. It was this honest yearning that was expressed. Okay. So that, that's great because that reinforces what I'm saying, but the, it's, it's not just the content. We, that has to be right too. Uh, um, whether it's explicit or implicit, whether it's subtle or direct, we need all those devices, depending yes. on who we're talking to. But it is also the, the form. And by that, I mean, it's the style. That is crucial. And what happens, the, the big mistake that Christians make, uh, and the way I characterize in the context of rock music, we go back to that, is we have a popular music. Um, if we add Christian words, we'll have Christian popular music. And it just is embarrassing for the most part. I mean, someone's going to write in and say that they know of this good band or something. Maybe yeah, so. Yeah. But the reason for that is that a, a form um, it speaks in a way as well. That The form is ultimately what the beauty derives from. It's the relationship of the parts to each other and also the relationship there of the whole that's created to its purpose. And we instinctively pick these things up. <clears throat> and so what we need to do is make a study of form as well. It is possible in rock music. So Genesis, for example, again, that wasn't Christianity that was uh, driving them, but they wanted to um, adapt what was happening in rock music to the forms of classical music. Yes. Uh, so the, the actual musical structures. Now, um, and they created something that was powerful in the field of rock music as well. I mean, the, I went to see with a guitarist, Steve Hackett, play uh, uh, just last year in Berkeley, actually. So fascinating. So, I, you know, I'm still going to see these guys. I'm going to see King Crimson as well, actually, later on. But yes. so, you know, I, I, it still has this pull for me. Now, I realized this in art, and we're going to have another discussion on this, on the nature of the form. That It's not just what you're describing, it's how you describe it. And the, the, the irony of this is that our foes seem to understand this. If you look at the, the cultural Marxists, which is basically, this is what, what the religion, the depth of this, it, that, that you describe, that first movement that's driving all this is a secular, atheistic, I think in roots, Marxist religion, actually, even if people don't think of themselves as Marxist. And... Um, what, what they have done, they have worked out how to structure it uh, right down to its core so that it speaks of what they want to say. Now, as you, as you said, that's never all bad. Um, and we can learn from what they do. And they've come yes. up with some new things that are really powerful and really good. Yes. Yes. But we need to understand that. And then we need to understand that in relation to the, the forms that as close as we can uh, say that are objectively good in the liturgy. Now, the, we, the, we, there's no definitive statement for any forms in the liturgy, but we look to tradition. There are certain guidelines for music, but it, it should be pristine in the liturgy. And then we experiment out there, but we need to be steeped in both. We need to understand where we're coming from, what we're trying to engage with, recognize what is good, and so it's not just the content, the drawing from those visual symbols of Aztec culture, 
it's the very forms, it's the styles that integrate one with the other. And that is where we're woefully short, I, I think, in the way that we engage with culture, it strikes me. David, let me, can I pose something to you? I'd, I'd love to pick your brain on this. Yes, of course, delightful. So just this morning, I, just this morning, I kid you not, I, I'm pulling out from my parish church and I, I turn on the radio and I'm, I hit the scan button and you can, you can, I don't know, I, I don't even know what it is, but you can always tell when it, and it lands on a Christian pop station. I don't even have to hear the lyrics. Like I can tell from the way the guitars sound and, and what's going on. I was like, oh, it's one of those channels. And I just switch it because I can't, I can't, I can't, it's, it's not palatable to me. <laughs> and, and I was trying, I was trying to enter into why is it not palatable? What rubs me wrong about this? And, and again, I, I want to be sensitive here. I know, you know, a lot of people find that music uh, moving and, and God bless you. I don't, I don't want to rob that from you, but I, I also don't want to not look honestly at why it rubs me wrong. And I want to get your opinion on this. I was just thinking on it this morning, thinking, I think it rubs me wrong because we're, we're I think you're giving me the language to understand why it rubs me wrong. We're, we're mixing forms. Yes. Like that is a form that is appropriate for a certain kind of expression. But yes. when we just slap Christian lyrics on top of that form, something in me just something doesn't work. Can you put it in words for yes. me? What's it, would, it would be like putting an apple skin on an onion. It, 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 you know, it's superficial. You know that it's not integrated with what's there at its depth. It's supporting it. It's holding it whole. But it, it's just... It, it's it's wrong. So always the feeling is that it's sentimental. Is that is the phrase that might be used or saccharine if you're being really nasty? Yeah. Do people even know what saccharine is anymore? Anyway, so but um, but the the point about this is that the reason it seems so superficial is that it is not integrated with the the driving mechanism that delivers it to us, which are the forms and structures underneath. And so and we sense this now. We, you could have, we know because Springsteen did it for you, you can have uh, what is essentially a secular, a profane art form. And I mean that in the sense of outside the temple. I don't mean it's you know, evil, embellished with profanity right, um, right. So, or, or mundane. You could use that one. But um, you could, and you can express sentiment in that context, which is consistent with yes. the Christian life. And that's what the Christian must do but it has to be of that form. Otherwise, we know. And you end up with something that is just neither one thing nor the other. And I have to say, because I can remember when I was listening to this stuff and I was not Christian, I used to look at the Christian rock people and I'm, I didn't, I mean, I laughed at them, but I would say more than anything, I felt sorry for them. I just thought that, you know, it, it just looked so sad to me that they thought this was any good. Um, and I, ever since, I, I can't, your average, I have to say, your average Catholic mass, you're getting that stuff. The, yes, uh, yes. The missalette music is just, um, gives me the reaction that you, you would, I saw it in your gestures, you know, I can't bear it. It makes my skin cruel. I talked about hairs on the back of my neck standing on when I heard the good stuff. I could feel my skin crawling. 
when I hear this bad stuff. Maybe I'm just particularly sensitive, but that's the problem. You have a form which is not in harmony with the content. And tradition, it's not easy to do. You need, uh, the, the liturgy is the wellspring of its own culture. And, and they, then it, um, it, it accepts and integrates with things from the outside, but that has to be the heart of it. And tradition, that's why we look to tradition, because it's been tried and tested and they, you know, other people have said, I can't bear that, get it out, you know. Yes. We don't want top of the pops 14th century, get it out of there, you know. So this dynamic has been going on constantly. Um, and I, I think that to me is what's happening. Are you familiar with a, a Christian philosopher named James K.A. Smith? No. I would I would recommend two books to you. Okay. Uh, one is a bit more academic and one a bit more popular. The more academic one is called Desiring the Kingdom, and the the less pop or the less academic, more popular is called You Are What You Love. And he opened my eyes to something I think is very pertinent to our conversation here. He he takes you on a tour through the modern cathedral what he calls the modern cathedral. In other words, the place where the secular world goes to worship. And he describes something with all kinds of side chapels and, and where the lighting is and the windows are, are angled just perfectly for a desired end. And, and in the end, you're, you, you're not so sure where you are until he reveals to you at the end, you're in a shopping mall. And he says the shopping mall has taken the, the form of, of liturgy, of, of the cathedral, and morphed it into its own end, which is consumerism. And then he says, the problem with much of Christianity today is that in our attempts to evangelize, we imitate the forms of the mall, yes. which is an imitation of the real form. Well, Paul the six, yeah, I know. Paul the six used the phrase "the smoke of Satan." Has come. We open the doors, and that, that that is another way of saying, and perhaps a bit more dramatically, exactly what you're describing. It's the wrong direction. We undiscerningly we just let all of this come in. Yes, um, yes. And when you have, I mean, at the heart of it, it's a, we need liturgical renewal. We need we, there's a lot of work to do there. We then need forms that are connected to it. And then it works its way out. And yes, this desire to reflect what seems to be popular, you can't reflect, as you say, if you imitate what people worship, then you're bringing the idol into, into the sanctuary. Okay, so here, here's where I, here's, here's comes back to my previous point, which I think is critical. And this is where I'm often criticized because I believe I'm misunderstood. So, so let me give the visual that I, I typically offer. I, I need a piece of paper. Hang on. Yep. So the visual that I, I often will provide, I'll say, okay, here, I want everyone to imagine this is the most beautiful painting you've ever seen in your life. And I describe that this is man and woman, just as God created us to be when we were naked without shame. So original innocence. And it is, as John Paul II says, this is the primordial sacrament, the original icon of the divine, is male and female made in the image of God, naked without shame. The enemy hates this icon. He hates this painting with all his diabolical fury. 
And his goal from the beginning is to close that window so that it no longer opens us to heaven. This is what happened with original sin. The original icon got terribly twisted up and distorted. But then the iconoclast sees this in its twisted form and thinks the solution, well, it looks like trash, throw it away. Right? So this is Manichaeism, this is Gnosticism, this is Puritanism, this is iconoclasm. It's not Catholicism. Christ comes into the world to restore creation to the purity of its origins. So if, if, to, if the puritanical approach is to throw it away, right, Hugh Hefner's approach is to take it out of the trash can but leave it just like this. Hmm. So this is pornography. And, and the reason the sexual revolution was so successful is because fast food is better than starving to death. Yes. When the approach is to throw it away, we're starving ourselves for the icon. We, we, we are created for that iconography. When we throw it away, we starve. Hugh Hefner says, hey, you shouldn't throw this away. And on this point, Hugh Hefner was right. But he, he didn't, he, he left it just like this. And that's why we are swept up by these distorted images of the human body in our pornographic culture. This, this, I have this discussion all the time in a different context. I, th this is so interesting. I, I'm often asked, I, the assumption is that it's the lowest common denominator, popular culture. And I say, no, no, no. That is the, sadly, that is the best we have. <laughs> That's why people gravitate towards Yes, yes. What, what, what you are seeing there is the woeful situation where we can't produce anything better. Yes, if, yes. Um, if you want to be an artist, you, the, the, the field is virtually wide open because there is nothing that represents that flat piece of paper out there. Now, Correct. always you need a, a living tradition has to speak to people today. You can't show a Russian icon to a, an Aztec. It, it will, will have some effect, yes. but, but it's not the most effect. We can't show Michelangelo to 21st century man. It will affect some, but not, not all. Yes. The 21st century Michelangelo, the 21st century Palestrina, and that will be the, they will be multi-millionaires. Yes. This, because popular culture is noble and accessible. And that's what beauty is. We know it when we see it and everybody, you don't need a course in aesthetics to describe it. Yeah, David, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking right with you. I'm tracking right with you. And, and here, here's where, here's again, here's where John Paul's theology of the body and the renewal of arts comes together. Because yes. John Paul II, also pulled this out of the puritanical trash can and started saying to the modern world, you mustn't throw this away. But he did something Hugh Hefner didn't do. He uncrumpled the original beautiful, wonderful painting so we could come again to see the original iconography of the body. And this becomes again a window to heaven. So, but here's where I'm often criticized because people, in order for this to happen, what is needed is inner renewal. The blind man has to come to see. We need an inner transformation. We need a deep, penetrating conversion of heart. We need a new way of seeing. And so John Paul II even speaks of a new ethos of seeing. 
of seeing the world, of seeing the human body with purity of heart. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. I am trying to show people that this is an icon of the divine. But most people, because they're so blinded by the pornographic culture, they think I'm trying to say this is an icon of God. And say that, so they say you're, 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 you're applying something blasphemous to the divine. And if this is all we get, then they're right, because this would be blasphemous to apply this to the divine. But I'm not applying this to divine to the divine. I'm saying we got to go on a journey. This is the journey that John Paul II invites us on, the journey of purification of our vision so that we can come again to see the icon as an icon. If we don't do that, then we, we're all we have is polarization between what I call the, the, the starvation approach and the fast food approach. Or to give it more theological terms, we have this polarization between idolatry and iconoclasm. And at the same time, so I agree, I, that's fantastic. And of course, that begins with me. Yes. I, 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 it's not me saying, you have to, it's I have to. Yes. And that's, Amen. that's through the sacramental life. It's a, a lifetime's work. Yes. Uh, we partake of the divine nature. It's incremental steps and then a few back. And it, that's the nature of it. At the same time, we need artists who understand that people are fallen. And so therefore, like the icon painter who represented, um, he's not showing us in that icon precisely what Christ looked like. What he's doing is showing us, giving us an idea of what it is, assuming that he's got an audience of all sorts of people. Yes. And, and appealing to them. So we need... And it, and it relates to form as well as content. It's not just what you show. And, and I always think with, the, with regard to pornography in Britain, they, the, the sort of landmark trial that opened it up was over D.H. Lawrence's um, Sons and Lovers, actually. So uh, is it art? Is it, is it pornography? And uh, the judge uh, made a remark during the eventually they said it's art but then of course under that umbrella everything came in that, that, and, and they knew that that's what was happening this was in the late 50s early 60s something like that it began the process but um, in the course of the trial the judge said something for which he was reviled and he's made fun he said I don't know what I don't know how to define pornography but I know it when I see it. I know it when I see it yeah I remember that. that that is the that is the point it as soon as you get into sort of definitions, only have it this much, show yep, show yep, this much. Yep, yep. Um, now, those, th it's good to be conservative in that way. Generally, I think, take into account human weakness. Yes. But, uh, the, this is the point. It's indefinable because it's about the style. It's about the way in which it's done, in the manner with which it's done, the grace with which it's produced. And, and the intention, the intention with which it's produced. Yes, the intention which will be reflected, um, and all of this, therefore, um, comes together. And so we need deeply Christian people who are, whose personal vocation is to contribute to the culture, not only in the arts and the theology, but every aspect, because you're dealing with a, with a culture which is infused with the, the, the inversion of this, um, and so people need to have this deep understanding. Um, 
yeah so th- 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 that's my mission i guess <laughs> and and mine and mine i i would say my mission is to hold this out to the world we all start here right yeah. But if we don't hold out the vision of what we're called to, we won't know how to get there. Yes. And, and this uncrumpling of the paper applies to, to all things precisely, and I'm coming full circle here, because the devil doesn't have his own clay. Yes. And I remember, this was maybe 12 years ago, I, I had this experience that I, I, I believe kind of gave me a window into what's on the horizon for the new evangelization. And, and here's my sense of it. I, I'm a, a, a deep fan of, of um, the music that I grew up listening to, which some of it was not so wholesome, and I've kind of weeded that out of my collection of, of things. But rock music itself, I, I, am, a, I am a fan of. And, and he, here's why. Because, and I make no bones about saying, I really believe rock music I don't think it can be denied. It was the soundtrack of the sexual revolution. Yes. Oh, yes. I absolutely agree. Yeah. But it was it was it was a response, and I I would I would urge anyone, <laughs> please read Bruce Springsteen's account of the night Elvis Presley appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show in the 1950s. Read his account of how he was bursting out of that puritanical repressive mold that the that the culture had had us in there was this this puritanical fearful approach to the body to sexuality to 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 the passions to desire and and it is understandable to me based in that repressive approach that the pendulum is going to swing to the other extreme mm. and elvis presley bursting on the scenes in the 1950s was the pendulum was starting to swing to the other extreme and springsteen is saying yeah let's swing the pendulum to the other extreme that's not my response so i want to be clear about this i'm not endorsing the pendulum swing to the other extreme i'm saying there is a middle way and it's the way of the incarnation it's the way of redemption and here's what I see. Here's what I think is coming. This is God's plan for music. Let's just go back to the same idea. With original sin, it got all twisted up. But God wants to do this with, with our music. He wants to untwist it. And here's what I believe. If rock and roll is the soundtrack of the sexual revolution, when that gets untwisted, what we have is the Song of Songs. The soundtrack of the Song of Songs. <laughs> the sound, which is the soundtrack of the Christian faith. Yeah. The mystics, yeah. the mystics always, uh, why do the mystics love the Song of Songs? More than any book in the Bible, the saints have written commentaries on the Song of Songs. Why? What do they see? I propose the Song of Songs is the authentic soundtrack of the Christian faith. And the reason the popular culture has been attracted to rock music is because it is a, it's a copy, it's a distortion, it's a, it's a crumpled up version of what we're really looking for. And the crumpled up version of what we're looking for is better than throwing it away. 
the fast food is better than starving to death. Mm. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, those who are lost in their passions are less lost than those who have lost their passions. That's beautiful. I've never heard that before. That's terrific. Yeah. Now, that does not mean they're not lost. <laughs> it just means they're less lost. Yeah. Why are they less lost? Precisely because they're still in touch with their yearning. And it's that yearning that eventually, if you're in touch with it, it will lead you to Christ. And the goal here is not to encourage people to lose themselves in their passions. No. It's to say, instead, whether you're on the puritanical wing or the, those, the, the sexual revolution wing, there is an alternative to each. Correct. That's what we're looking for. Correct. Neither is right, but there is something that, but one is slightly better yeah. towards the other. It's, it's, it's better in as much as, well, put it this way. Look at the parable of the, the prodigal son. What caused him to leave? It was his hunger that he didn't think his father was going to satisfy. So he went out and tried to fill it with anything he could find. What was it that brought him back to the house of the father? It was his hunger. And the older brother who had taken the kind of puritanical approach, if you will, of just following all the rules, he wouldn't even enter the celebration. This is the danger that those who are not in touch with their hunger, what I'm calling passion here, if you're not in touch with your hunger, you're not going to know that you're made for a wedding feast. You're not going to know you're made for the celebration in the Father's house. Yeah. And that's why those who are lost in their passions are in some way less lost than those who've lost their passions. But again, I, I want to underscore what you said, David. This is not to say, go lose yourself in your passions. It's to say, we are to direct our passions at the wedding feast of the Lamb. <laughs> this is the true fulfillment. Here's another way of saying the same thing. I'll tell my students that you have three choices of passion. You're either going to become a stoic, an addict, or an aspiring mystic. So make your choice. What's it going to be? The stoic represses desire. The addict indulges in finite pleasure. And if that yearning is, some, is a yearning for the infinite, finite pleasure will never satisfy. So you think you need more and more and more and more. That's the life of the addict. But the life of the aspiring mystic is someone who's opening that hunger to the eternal feast and trusting in the divine gift. And the more we trust in that divine gift, the more all the finite pleasures of the world, rather than becoming occasions of sin, the mystery gets opened up and we discover them as icons, as windows to the eternal joy. That's the life of the aspiring mystic. Well, I think there is a, something that all of us should aspire to. And we'll, we'll, I think that's a great moment to stop. Christopher has been... Just a delight to talk to you today. Uh, a real pleasure for me too, David. I look forward to more of these conversations. Definitely. God bless you. Blessings. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you're interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, 
you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.